Welcome, everybody, to Podcasting with Friends Movie Edition. I'm Nick Moffat, and I'm here with Derek Deal. Hello. And Brandon Bowlby. Hey, guys. And today we're going to be talking about Star Wars, Call Me By Your Name, Phantom Thread. Those are our main movies we're going to be reviewing at the end of the episode. Before that, we're going to talk about the Academy Award nominations that just came out and our overall thoughts with those. And then we're going to do some short reviews of all the other movies that have come out in the last few months. Uh, we're gearing up for the end of the year movie episode, which comes out next month. So uh, these are kind of uh, our lead-in to what is going to make our top tens of the year. So um, while we get before we get started, um, how's everything going with you guys? Um, have you been enjoying movies the last few months? It's been pretty amazing. Like I mean, I feel like I got a lot of the Oscar movies out of the way maybe like over a month ago and now I've been going and seeing like a lot of really smaller ones that I saw on top 10 lists like Sight and Sound and AV Club and a lot more foreign films this last month. Nice. What about you, Derek? I, you know, I still haven't been very successful at making it out to the theater and keeping up with you guys and all these new movies. I've been slowly catching up on, uh, you know, the fall movies as they're slowly coming out and, uh, and I've seen a couple new ones, but yeah, I haven't been keeping up nearly as regular as you guys have. Man, you should get on that movie pass. That's been like a complete game changer for me. I don't know. I've been going to the movies constantly because of it. It's like one at least once a week. The Academy Awards just came out. The nominees, people have different opinions on the Academy Awards. Were there any like big surprises for you guys or anything that you were pretty excited about? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think there there's a lot of cool things like get out, get outs for nominations is really cool. That's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like Jordan Peele got best director, best writer, and best picture nominations. And then there's also best actor, but like so that's that's really just awesome and pretty cool. Uh, Especially for how low of a budget that movie was. Yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely like. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of the other name, a lot of the other movies on here, but I feel like uh, probably when you put it up against a lot of the other ones, as far as like technical achievements and stuff, it probably doesn't really stand a chance. But I think like it's one of those movies that probably deserved at least to be talked about as one of the best movies of the year, just because of its cultural resonance and its. And it was just a good freaking movie that took everybody by surprise. You know, everybody went and saw it. So, yeah, absolutely. A big surprise that I'm seeing in the best picture category is Mudbounds from Netflix Studios, which I really didn't think would get recognized there with all the controversy of them not releasing it heavily in theaters and putting it simultaneously on their streaming site especially after how amazing Beast of No Nation was and how ignored it was when it came out at the Academy Awards and other ceremonies. Um, it's pretty cool for them just like kind of fully caving and giving in to Mudbound. Yeah, for sure. For me, I was pretty happy with all the Best Picture nominees. Like there's usually, especially in like the 10 movie format that they've switched to, there's usually like one or two or three in there that I'm not really a fan of. I can think of like almost every year there's like that like cheesy one or like that really boring one or whatever. But like this year I looked at it, and I was I was pretty happy with all of those movies. 
I, I also think the the best adapted screenplay category that continues to be one of my favorite categories. Like the two writing categories typically have these movies that aren't recognized in other categories. So like with this year with best adapted screenplay, there's Logan, Molly's Game, and The Big Sick, which weren't really recognized anywhere else, but they're great movies. Wow, that came out. I did not even notice that Logan was a was nominated <laughs> for an Academy Award. That's amazing. Yeah, first comic book movie up for a major award. Like, not even um, Christopher Nolan's Batman's got a major screenwriting award like that. Yeah, that's nuts. That's so cool. I'm really excited about that, and I'm really excited about The Big Sick getting a screenplay nomination. Um, A couple interesting things that I saw that are a little bit further down on the list. There's, of course, the highly anticipated best cinematography category, which, I mean... The front runner is clearly Blade Runner uh, with Roger Deakins. It's his 14th nomination. He's never won. So everybody is like rooting for him, crossing their fingers. Um, while on some more minor like award ceremonies, Shape of Water has taken the cinematography award. So that would be its competition and it would be a crime if Blade Runner didn't win, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. I was just going to say, Blade Runner hasn't gotten, like, any love for anything else. Like, all award season for all the other award all the award shows, too. Like, Blade Runner has been totally forgotten or ignored, which is, you know, fine. Like, not, not all movies are awards movies, whatever that means. But, you know, I, I don't expect everything to be, like, recognized. But it hasn't been. And so seeing that it was recognized here because of Roger Deakins and how beautiful that movie was, I have hope that this will be his year that he'll win. Right. And that Blade Runner actually got impressively five nominations, which, I mean, I think it should take, should be in almost every category, but, like, that's pretty cool for such a genre film at the Academy Awards. Another smaller category that I think is pretty stacked but overlooked um, is Best Score. Um, We have Hans Zimmer and John Williams and Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. Those are massive names right now. And also just like off the top of my head, I don't know who the composer is, but Shape of Water, like the moment I saw that movie, I was like, this is one of the most beautiful scores of the year. So even with those like other major names in that category, um, Shape of Water also is right up there with them. One more that was really interesting, like kind of a niche thing that happened, was the best foreign film. A lot of expected picks on here. Loveless Square, Fantastic Woman have been talked about for a long time. But kind of a weird thing that happened was at the Golden Globes, all those films were nominated except for another one called In the Fade, which took the Golden Globe and won for foreign film. But here it's not even nominated. So that's kind of different, and I don't think that happens very often. But the foreign film category is stacked with more submission politics than almost any of the other categories, so it probably had something to do with that. Yes, probably something weird went on behind the scenes. But still, I always really like the foreign film category because they're typically, for me at least, like movies that I probably didn't hear of. You know, like every year when the Academy Awards comes around, it's always fun to see the foreign film category and the documentary category because they're like, you know, I don't necessarily have heard of those ones, and it's kind of an excuse to go out and watch things that aren't playing at the big theaters and you have to kind of seek out. But they're usually great movies. Yeah, uh, best documentary is kind of cool. Like, I'd never heard of Abacus. It's already on Amazon to stream for free. Um, Icarus, Last Man in Aleppo, and Strong Island are all streaming on Netflix already. It's only Faces Places that isn't available. So that's a pretty easy category to 
watch through. Cool. Well, um, I had a few fun trivia facts. I guess they're not trivia, but they're like, they're kind of stats about this year's Academy Awards that just, you know, when the nominations came out, I didn't necessarily come with the, up with these on my own. I saw a lot of them on like Twitter and stuff, but I don't know. I thought you guys might find some of these interesting. So I kind of wanted to, um, kind of wanted to run through them. First of all, The Shape of Water leads the nominations with 13 total. Um, in the Best Director category, Jordan Peele was the he became the fifth black director, and Greta Gerwig became the fifth woman director to be nominated for Best Director. Um, Christopher Plummer became the oldest acting nominee to date at 88 years old. Meryl Streep has been nominated for Academy Awards 21 times. But this was the first time since 1985's Out of Africa that the movie she was nominated for was also nominated for Best Picture. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty crazy if you think about it. I mean, I kind of started noticing that pattern recently that the movies she was getting nominated for were like all kind of cutesy fun movies for the last like seven years. And yeah, and not like critically acclaimed, but her performance is always so good. It makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think it has something to do with like, I don't know, you know, like I, people, I, like I saw that one on Twitter, like I didn't come up with that one myself, but people were talking about how oftentimes like, like women look for the role and men pick the movie, you know? So like. What? Doubt? Wasn't, I was, I was Doubt wasn't nominated that, for best? I just looked that up. No, it wasn't. It was nominated, had five awards, but it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, Devil Wars Prada. She has a lot of, like, fun, almost comedy roles in the last ten years. That's really interesting. But it's not just ten years, though. We're talking about 1985. That's before all three of us were born. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, So, John Williams, he got nominated for Star Wars. He adds to his record of most nominations by a living person at 51. But he is eight behind Walt Disney, who holds the overall record for most nominations at 59. It's kind of really cool for Walt Disney. Like, I wonder how long he'll keep that record, or if he'll always have that record. Well, let's see how old John Williams is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, God, it's kind he's of... 85. Yeah, I don't yeah. think he'll break that record. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, he'd at least have to live to, what, 93 it be nominated every year. Yeah. <laughs> it might be worthwhile to like look into too that like Walt Disney may have had more opportunities to be nominated for things. Right. Like per, because he was a producer, so I mean, he could have been nominated for other things as well while John Williams was clearly just like one category maybe two. Yep. So Yeah. I also uh, this isn't really a, a stat, but I wanted to just throw out that um Sufjan Stevens is nominated for best original song he's like one of you know me and Brandon's favorite musicians so um I'm personally hoping that he uh plays at the Academy Awards I think that'd be really cool sometimes they do that yeah Um, that's amazing you know what's also a crime um is David Lowry didn't get not I mean he wouldn't and a ghost story got very overlooked but David Lowry didn't get nominated for best song for a ghost story that's like one of the best, like I don't know, pop rock songs I've electronic songs I've heard in a long time. Um, another fun stat is Michael Stolbarg, the actor, was in three films that were nominated for Best Picture this year: uh, "Call Me by Your Name," "The Post," and "The Shape of Water." So, I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, 
that doesn't happen very often at all. No. And last but not least, this isn't necessarily really a stat either, just kind of a fun thing. Just hypothetically, if you added in I, Tonya, which you know is, to me, one of the best movies of the year, uh, you would have a film representing every decade since 1940. 1940 being The Darkest Hour in Dunkirk, 1950, Phantom Thread, 1960, The Shape of Water, 1970, The Post, 1980, Call Me By Your Name, 1990, I, Tonya, 2000, Lady Bird, and 2010, Get Out and Three Billboards. That's so, amazing. That's just kind of a fun thing. And people say I, Tonya would have been the 10th one if they had decided to do 10 and not 9. It's just kind of fun that you could like look at the movies that came out this year and kind of choose to take a trip through history if you want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, those are just fun little trivia facts. Well, thanks for sharing, Nick. Thank you, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to switch to do short reviews. These are movies that we were excited about going into the winter season, but um, we're not featuring them in this episode. So we're going to run through, do quick shot reviews of what we thought about them. Um, Brandon, you want to get us going? Yeah, so one movie that came out early in the winter um, was Coco, uh, and I loved this movie. I probably cried two or three times throughout it. It really got to me, and I honestly think, even with Inside Out included, um, I think this is probably one of my favorite Pixar movies in almost a decade since Wally and Ratatouille. Yeah, I loved this movie too. I felt like it took us headfirst into Mexican culture, and I personally love movies that take us to places that we never would have been to before. And seeing like their afterlife was really fascinating. And like there was such magical style with it. And uh, the songs were so much fun. I, I loved it. This will give Sufjan Stevens a run for his money for sure on best song category. Yeah. Another movie that came out that we were all pretty interested in was The Disaster Artist. It was the movie that was James Franco telling the story about the making of the room, which is known as one of the worst movies ever made. I personally, I very much enjoyed it. Um, I thought Franco did a solid impression of Tommy Wiseau, but honestly, I preferred how genuine the room was. The room may have been one of the worst movies ever, but it was like a weird, genuine, fascinating piece of work. And I felt like the disaster artist kind of couldn't get away from the like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> His accent is funny, right? Yeah, with the, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it definitely was, I think, way funnier than I expected, and that's, to me, what it had going for it. Um, Like, the movie was just entertaining throughout, and me, and I remember the theater was pretty much cracking up during the whole thing, but I do kind of agree with you. I think the direction kind of, like, failed them towards the end, and I'm not so sure if they wrapped it up in the right mood. It kind of was off for me at the end. Yeah. Another movie that came out this year that uh, we were looking forward to was Downsizing, the new Alexander Payne movie. Um, I thought it was a really interesting concept. Um, it kind of was Matt Damon going through midlife crisis while being in like a sci-fi world of being shrunk and smaller than everything. Um, I kind of felt like the concept is what carried the movie, but it had kind of a light conviction. Um, it, was, it was fun, but it wasn't as powerful as it could have been. Um, I thought Hung Chow absolutely stole the movie. Her performance, her performance was hilarious yet sharp and powerful. So um, yeah, I would I, I would recommend the movie just for that. And if you're looking for something light, another movie that we were 
all looking forward to is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut with Molly's Game. <clears throat> I think as far as like someone's first films go, that movie it set a pretty high bar. Uh, I mean, but he's hardly an amateur. You know, he has he's been in the industry forever, and I know he's always very he works very closely with his uh, directors and stuff. So I think that I thought the movie was pretty good overall. Uh, don't really have anything negative to say about it, but uh, I'm really curious to see if this is a one and done kind of thing or if we see him uh, emerge as an actual director. Yeah, um, this was to me, I think one of the top most fun experiences I've had in the theater. Like this movie was long, two hours and 20 minutes, but it flew by and Aaron Sorkin's pace is incredible. It's a really strong directorial debut. Um, again, with the endings, I know I keep saying it, but some of it was a little too on the nose, um, even though it still did get to me. Um, yeah, go see Molly's Game. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I definitely enjoyed Molly's Game. Um, I probably liked it a little bit less than you guys. I just, I definitely always appreciate Aaron Sorkin's writing, like his pacing and executive functioning of the dialogue is always so interesting and powerful and the way this he delivers the story through his words are so great i i just didn't think he added that much as a director um and i, I you know brand mentioned the ending i kind of felt like the movie kind of pulled some punches you know they it could have been more powerful than it ended up being um so i definitely wanted to bring up the shape of water guillermo del toro's newest movie it was by far my favorite del toro movie i mean i haven't seen all of them but like i was in love with every shot of the movie the the shadows and the the cinematography and the soundtrack it just everything about it is so beautiful it's like a beautiful 1950s monster movie except the monster is romantic and the real monster is a man so i would recommend this movie for almost anybody yeah, this movie got nominated for 13 Oscars, and every department of that shows on screen, even in the smallest detail, like the set design and their apartment complex and hallways, and everything is just like dripping with style and tons of creativity in each aspect of the filmmaking. This is one of the best and most beautiful movies of the year, and I loved it a lot. Uh, another movie <clears throat> we were really just kind of interested to see how it was going to turn out was Netflix's first blockbuster, or their first attempt at making like a, a big blockbuster movie with Bright. I mean, overall, I think, I mean, David Ayer sucks. Like, <laughs> End of Watch was really good, and I wish he could have just channeled that anger and energy into this movie. It could have been great. Like, this this concept is something we've never seen before, but... It wasn't in any way great. Yeah, I mean, I felt like it wasn't as bad as Suicide Squad. Like, when it first came out on Netflix, people were really saying it was the worst movie of the year. I didn't think it was the worst movie of the year. But I thought I thought it was a fun concept, but it kind of lost track of itself. And it just kind of became kind of boring. Um, it, could have been, it could have been better. Uh, so another movie I saw this year is Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. 
This movie is notorious for scrapping Kevin Spacey's role at the last second and getting an Oscar nomination for the new role of Christopher Plummer in that movie, um, which they shot and released the movie in less than a month. Um, I wish Ridley Scott made more movies like this. Uh, It was far from perfect, but it took such a small concept that you see in film all the time, like a ransom kidnapping film, and just blew up the scope into complete epic proportions. Um, it was so ambitious. And like there was just this shot in maybe the first 10 minutes of the film of this like period piece, um, massive boat pulling into the dock. And it was like a two-second shot that probably cost them like half a million dollars to put in the movie. And that's something that a director like Ridley Scott shoots for and that a lot of other directors don't. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to bring up The Darkest Hour. This movie will be remembered by Gary Oldman's powerful performance of Winston Churchill. Uh, It was his first few weeks as prime minister. Honestly, I didn't realize the movie was just going to be those first few weeks. And so it, it was basically a time of hopelessness in the war and... There were a few really inspiring and powerful moments, especially towards the end, but I felt like the middle kind of dragged. And I mean, I'm sure that's how real life would have been, but um, I just, it kind of left me a little, uh, a little dry a little bit. Yeah, it was a pretty small movie. I did not expect it just to take place in such a few amount of days. For a Joe Wright period piece, um, he rarely stays this contained. Because of that, he was definitely able to shine and make it beautiful with the acting and the makeup and the cinematography like he always does so just watching the movie for those reasons is well worth it uh so i saw i Tanya, and this is probably my like number one pick for best time i've had this winter in the theater um i thought this was just like perfectly paced from beginning to end like executing this complex coen brothers-esque script of just continuously escalating and the situation getting worse and worse throughout. Um, I knew nothing about the storyline and very little about ice skating. And so I just enjoyed seeing like what actually happened to these characters and what unfolded. Um, also the ice skating shots were unbelievable. Like the first time she puts on her skates and her and the cameraman step out and do like a beautiful cinematography dance together. Like, I put my hands in front of my like mouth and gasped. It was so incredible. Yeah, I'm completely with you on this movie. I loved this movie. Like the way they like the pacing was so great. Like it, you know, it was a biopic, and I feel like oftentimes biopics can be all the same. Like they kind of follow the same tropes. And I'm always impressed when a biopic comes out and is completely original. And that's how this movie felt. It felt like something fresh and interesting. And even though it was a story that most of us knew already, they were able to give, give these people that everyone's seen in the news so much depth and complexity. And like, they'd be saying something to you, but then you'd see them do something totally different. And it was like, like, it was hilarious throughout. And it was also at the same time, completely heartbreaking. Like it deals with trauma and, um, being in the public eye and the media and just so many themes all wrapped in together. Yeah. I, I loved this movie. Yeah. I, Tanya, I would recommend for just about anybody. I saw Steven Spielberg's The Post, 
this movie comes with just about everything Steven Spielberg does well, his awesome lighting and really creative long takes and building tension really well. This is a really important part of history um, that's fascinating to watch unfold. Again, something I didn't really know about and to see what these characters had to go through and how big of a choice they had to make at the end in regards to their newspaper. One thing that I think this film maybe suffers from is everyone congratulates it so much on it being like perfectly timed for right now. I, I couldn't help but felt it got bogged down on the preaching and some of the speeches that it made. And that's, that also is kind of a Steven Spielberg trope, I guess, is um, him wrapping up movies in that way. But it was still a really great Spielberg movie. So we wanted to bring up a foreign film that's a horror film, uh, Hounds of Love. It's It was the second kidnapped and trapped in a place horror movie I saw this year, the other one being Berlin Syndrome. Um, both of them are totally amazing. Like, the, the tension building is unbelievable, this movie. It just incredibly powerful and upsetting and if you're into horror movies i would highly recommend it i mean personally i preferred uh berlin syndrome i thought it was more like psychologically investing but this one was kind of more physically investing if that makes sense yeah i kind of feel slightly the opposite i was surprised to hear you say that like i loved both berlin syndrome and hounds of love and reading what you put here like i didn't really realize how similar these two um, thriller horror movies were, but I liked Hounds of Love maybe even better. I thought the two villains of the movie were super complex and interesting to see how they work together and what their actual situation was throughout the movie until it comes like full circle at the end. Um, also, I really liked the mega slow motion shots, just like clean and crisp, and when they would actually use them throughout the movie at intense moments. Not just like normal slow motion, but like super high speed camera slow motion that they would do that looked awesome. Um, this is a great horror movie. So is, this movie got nominated for Best Documentary. Um, it's called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. Uh, it's streaming right now on Amazon for free. This is a documentary, um, it's a courtroom drama about the Abacus Bank that is run by a small Chinese family um, in Chinatown in New York. They suffered from a criminal investigation being indicted um, after the 2008 market crash, which was the only bank after 2008 to face felony charges. And this documentary goes through the entire trial, which took place over about five years from beginning to end. It is an amazing story. And it also like tells it very completely. And I really respected it for that. Like this family's not innocent, but they're also not guilty. And them just like unpacking the exact situation, the politics of what was going on was really, really great. So Columbus is a movie that came out over the summer, but I just watched it last night. Brandon saw it months ago, but I was totally blown away by it. But not into the typically like, oh, wow, this movie's so flashy. In fact, in fact, it was the opposite. It was a very small, quiet movie where it was just a couple people hanging out in Columbus, Ohio, looking at architecture and just kind of getting to know each other and learning about how, the, how each other's lives impact each other and growing together in a very small period of time. It's, it's, it's similar to my favorite movie that came out last year, Patterson, where it's just 
people living in a place and having a piece of art kind of reflect their life. Patterson was poetry, this one's architecture. But I never thought I'd be so interested in Columbus, Ohio. So um, that is also available right now on Hulu. I saw this maybe over the summer. It came out a while ago. It was very similar to Patterson. That's cool you bring up that comparison in a lot of ways. And while I could see a lot of people overlooking Patterson because it's such a small, subtle, intimate film, this carries that same light weight, but it didn't hit me in almost any way at all. Like I thought it just kind of came and went and I didn't really see the depth to it like I did with Patterson and I didn't really get into the characters that much. But it is a very unique and special film in its own way. <laughs> well, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our featured reviews. Speaking of agreeing to disagree, the first feature review that we're going to go over today is a movie that's probably the biggest movie of the year, and it's incredibly divisive between fans, critics, regular people, and yet everyone seems to have a strong opinion on it. And honestly, I don't know how we're going to talk about this movie without not having to be a two-hour-long conversation. Um, so the first movie that I'm talking about is Star Wars The Last Jedi. A quick summary about the plot, if you haven't seen it, Rey develops her newly discovered abilities with the guidance of Luke Skywalker, who is unsettled by the strength of her powers. Meanwhile, the Resistance prepares for the battle with the First Order. Um, how we're doing these feature reviews is each of us chose one movie to talk about. So um, Derek actually chose this movie. Derek, why did you want to talk about this movie? Well, I can actually keep this, like, it doesn't have to be a giant long conversation. Um, but what I really appreciated about this movie was how much Ryan Johnson, like, made it his own. Like, it, it was seemingly not, like, caring about, like, the rest of the franchise. Like, I, I don't know, I feel like with The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams was really, like, setting up this epic long saga, all these mysteries and stories would slowly be revealed to us and and this movie kind of didn't really care about that like he kind of you know we get a lot we get like all of the answers pretty much in this movie and yeah i mean just like his style that he brought to it i thought it was really creative and really different and something that the franchise really needed i think he even may might help like uh, bump up jj's game when he comes back to the, the last one uh, just visually, like the opening was it like the first opening like fifteen minutes is crazy intense and something we haven't seen in Star Wars in a long time, maybe ever. Probably one of the better action scenes I think we've seen. I mean, I don't want to say any spoilers, but this movie definitely had multiple moments in it that are some of my favorite scenes in all of Star Wars. And I'd even, and you guys know my opinions on Star Wars. I'm not like the biggest Star Wars fan, but I'd go as far to say that this is my favorite Star Wars movie. Wow. I wanted to speak to the first thing you said about how Ryan Johnson didn't really care about, you know, all the questions that J.J. Abrams set up. And I, I find what he did so fascinating because, yeah, like J.J. set up all these, all these questions and, Ryan Johnson just went ahead and answered them. But I felt like J.J.'s whole purpose of The Force Awakens was to get people interested in Star Wars again. He just needed to uh, make a movie that was familiar enough because, you know, we wanted to get the taste of the prequels out, out of our mouths. You know, so he took a familiar story, but what he really needed to do was introduce new characters and get us 
interested in the new characters and where a lot of people left with like, you know, J.J. Abrams also was involved in the show Lost where, you know, people left The Force Awakens being like, oh, what is this? What is this? What is this? And, you know, just like how Lost panned out, you know, the answers came and people weren't really happy with the answers. But in my opinion, at least what I took away from it, like I was very much even more so interested in the characters. I thought he made a lot of really bold character choices and all the stuff with Luke Skywalker and Rey, like some people don't like. But man, I was really into how things progressed and how how much character development went into um, a lot of those things. And it, I, so I feel like, yeah, Ryan Johnson answered a lot of questions and maybe he didn't care about, you know, certain things. But I felt like he really did care about the characters and paid a lot of attention to um, where things were going from a motivational standpoint. Yeah, two things. I did like how much answers to the questions J.J. Abrams set out that Ryan Johnson answered in this film. And I think it is a really interesting place that he ended the second film in this trilogy. Unlike a lot of second films, it's not cliffhanger after cliffhanger. It's actually kind of wrapped up and it could be left where it is. And that puts it in a really awesome place going forward. So this is like one decision I really liked of his. The next movie could take place the next day or it could take place the next decade really like it's an open slate for the final climax and where it wants to go um i love i did like that choice of his a lot as far as the the characters nick this definitely is a character film and i should like it for that and that's cool he focused on the character so much like a lot of people i, I agree with you i loved ray a lot and Kylo and what they were going through throughout this film with each other. But him focusing so much on the characters with Poe and Finn and the sub-characters he was introducing and pretty much like everything he did with them, I was really not on board with any of their emotion and any of their quests outside of Rey. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can all agree that the um, like the casino scene was pretty weird and uh, confusing and maybe pointless. <laughs> like, I think I think you know it did do some things where it uh, expanded the universe, which can be worthwhile. But it also was like kind of jarring in that oh, now these characters are all of a sudden like running. How far are they going to like? on this crazy mission just for me the whole mission didn't really make any sense that they were going on even when like Poe's describing it like there was like when he started describing this is the first time I haven't had that reaction to dialogue in a movie before like when he's actually telling them that they're going on this mission thing like I was thinking in my head like wait what wait what what is happening in this movie right now <laughs> that whole like transition was just so strange and them calling the like CGI woman from the first film and her, and her, like I don't know what she was doing. She was like fighting a battle, doing like cartwheels and somersaults while union ex- disputes. explaining exposition of what they had to do for the next half hour. Yeah, he's just a strange that 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 chunk. Like it just it just felt unnatural in the whole yeah. movie, and yeah. ultimately probably should have been removed. Yeah, but. and see see the, see though like I I disagree though about um about some of the the character stuff in that time though because. Like, I, I really like Poe Dameron. He's not, like, the deepest, most complex character, but I feel like he doesn't necessarily need to be. He's just, like, a cool pilot, and he's, like, really eager and, like, like a little... He's just too gun-ho to, like, take action. And, um, like, I, I 
even though his character isn't complicated, I feel like Oscar Isaac as an actor like elevates him into being like a worthwhile character. And um, his interactions with Laura Dern's character, I was really into all of that. And I really liked how she, they established her. And then you like you hated her. And then they like switched it. And you realize that the character you were rooting for was the one that was actually making mistakes. Yeah. So for me, like a lot of that was that was pretty cool. Um, Maybe like I'm not going to talk about the logic gap with Laura Dern's character, but besides that, I I agree with you. I actually liked how they turned Poe like kind of upside down and like made him make mistakes and kind of like challenge his cockiness, and that was his character arc. I liked that. If it had ended up with him like behind bars, and that's where they <laughs> left us off, not like not like well, I hope you learned your lesson today. Um, well, I mean, and like, there, I loved the direction of it. I like the conclusion of it, like, didn't work for me. But like, why would they put him in jail though? Because I mean, they could just he like you know has to find a way to escape and then save the day in the correct way. I don't know. Like that could be his arc going into the third film. Sure, but like, but like they should have given him consequences for his actions. Yeah, I mean, they were to make it like make sense. They were in a pretty desperate situation though, and their people were dying very fast, and they didn't really have time to punish people i mean i hear what you're saying but like he was one like the best people in the movie like and they needed him you guys are to fight and stuff you guys are selling me on poe dameron for sure like now that i'm thinking about like compared to his character in the first movie like if we're looking at this this like linear story for him it's actually makes him a really fascinating character because in the first movie we literally like all we really know about him is just everybody like constantly looks at him and says he's the best pilot we've ever seen and like and that's like the extent of his character in the first movie so when we open up the second movie that's kind of what we're assuming is like happening and you know seeing him like that's definitely what he thinks is happening but then we kind of get the perspective from like his superiors and stuff and we start to realize like that's not what's happening like he's just he's this cocky guy that thinks he is the best and that he knows all the right answers and he really doesn't yeah and that that ultimately ends up being a fairly interesting character oh no i didn't mean to sell you on him (laughs) that was not my intention i like the idea of of him but the logic and the execution was so above and beyond what made sense yeah for sure yeah maybe not for me (laughs) Um, yep I, uh, going back to how Derek started this, I thought the action in this movie was, like, really amazing. Probably some of the best action in any of the Star Wars movies. Um, mm-hmm. like, we didn't have, like, a straight up, like, you know, lightsaber on lightsaber fight, but the lightsaber fight that we did have was super exciting and innovative. And it's probably the best lightsaber fight, right, in Star Wars. Yeah. It, We're talking like, about the red cloaks any. or the ending climax? Probably the red cloaks. Yeah. Okay, yeah, the right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, such a good fight scene. You know, and without talking about too much spoilers, like the ending with Luke Skywalker, um, his his lightsaber fight too was like it totally got me as well. Like I was yeah, I was tricked like a few times just in that in those couple moments. Um which uh which was also really thrilling. Yeah, for sure a smart twist there. Like, you know, again, like we could be, we could talk about this movie for, for a while I'll, longer. I'll say, yeah, I think this was the best looking Star Wars film ever made so far up until this point. 
um, what Ryan Johnson does with his camera and sets and the way he like stages his scenes are the best thing Star Wars has done in that department so far. And just from the opening like battle sequence, um, it was so intense and so well put together. He's taking his like his indie aesthetics and really applying them to this like blockbuster and making things look beautiful. And I really respected that out of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I heard, I heard uh, someone. I can't remember who the interview was, but like the first movie was like Han Solo, the second one was Luke Skywalker, and the third one was supposed to be Princess Leia. So um, I don't know how they're gonna do that. Like I feel like they're gonna have to change a few things. They're going to have to have like a funeral or something for her. But I mean, I feel like it's gonna be like rallying the troops on some level. But you know, to I fight hope the they Empire, just. But, I hope um, they just re recast her and keep the intended story going forward without dwelling or making any no, they changes. They can't recast Princess Leia. <laughs> they can't recast I, I think that would be Leia. so good and, like, powerful. It's just, like, this is the story, like, I don't know, she would want to be told, like, we don't want to just put this character know, in the ground. They would never. They would never. But, but I, I They mean, would never? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that is my thought about it. They yeah. can't. <laughs> They can't recast her unless she had like a twin or something, but like I don't think so. <laughs> like they can't. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep just steps in. They just don't address it at all. She, she can do it. anything. <laughs> she steps in and no one knows it's Meryl Streep. She's just so good. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's still her. All right. Okay, so let's move on to the next movie. Um, Brandon, you chose the movie Call Me By Your Name. Um, I'm just going to give a brief summary for those who don't know. In northern Italy in 1983, a 17-year-old Elo begins a relationship with visiting Oliver, his father's research assistant, with whom he bonds over his emerging sexuality, their Jewish heritage, and the beguiding Italian landscape. So, Brandon, um, why did you choose to review this movie? This is one of the best films of the year. It'll be in my top five, maybe even much higher. We'll see. Um, This is such a unique love story in the fact that even though it is like a gay love story in the 80s, it doesn't carry this massive like baggage and dramatic flair to it. It's really subtle and unconsequential as the characters develop feelings for each other. Um, I thought that was such a unique take on gay relationships when it wasn't easy to be in one. Um, Because not everyone has, like, the worst inner turmoil that ruins their whole life. Like, you can tell these more realistic, subtle stories about it. And the movie was also impeccably made. It was shot in such an, like, artistic, timeless way doesn't look like anything that's coming out right now. I mean, it almost looks like a film from the 80s, which it takes place in the 80s, but they did that aspect of it so well. Like, I can imagine turning on this movie in 40 years and hardly feeling like it didn't come out yesterday. Not to mention, to top off this very subtle movie, it had probably the most on-the-nose ending of, like, any movie I saw this season, but... It was done almost like in the complete opposite way that you'd expect and that you'd think a movie would go about showing the climax. And it's super like idealist and almost implausible, but that makes it like all the more special and 
impactful at the end. Yeah, I, I really like what you just said about the ending. I, th- I thought the ending was probably the most special part of the movie. It, yeah, you're you're totally right. It's like it's a weird thing because like one of the characters does like explicitly say like what the movie's about, but then they kind of revel in it and they kind of let the characters just sit with those feelings and just you feel like they're learning something as they're just sitting and soaking in the moment. There's something like really, really powerful about that. I mean, like that, that's like the magic of film, you know, it's, it's being able to see human emotion. So, so realistically, and yeah, I mean, maybe it works because the scene goes on longer than you would expect it to or longer than you'd want it to. I mean, I think the character almost says something at one point halfway through um, about that and self acknowledges it. But yeah, they just they unpack all the emotions that they need to and it works so well. And then but then like also like after the dad, like there's like a whole nother scene like after that, like, oh, yeah, where yeah. I mean, the very end of the movie, like the credit sequence is is just like him sitting by a fire, you know, and looking at the fire. And I thought that right. was like really powerful because like, you know, it's it's like, you know, the, the whole thing with this movie is that it's, it's a teenage love story. You know, this kid, he is like a kid. He's immature. He's like he's horny. He just wants to have sex with everything because he's like so like jacked up and just like emotional and like excitable. It's like he's he's learning something profound at a crucial point in time and you know he's he's lucky for it that he's that he's learning this like life lesson and he's like it's beautiful because it is pain you know it is it is hard because life can be hard but it's also pain in a way we've like don't rarely see very much because like no he never gets yelled at yeah he never yells at anybody else he's not like you know, throwing shit against the wall, like bawling his eyes out. You know, there's just like yeah, it's not a few tears. It's not, and that's the whole movie. It's not trauma. You know, it's not like Itania, where it's a movie about you know about trauma and how that affects your whole life. This is like the opposite of like yeah, pain happens, but if you appreciate that feeling and like learn from it and you know revel in the good and the bad, then you know, the good will be better and you'll learn and grow up and be a better person. I liked how you didn't necessarily know where the movie was going. For me, like going into it, I just kept hearing about how sad it was. Like that's like I people were like all these critics and stuff were just like talking about their whole theater was bawling. And I actually like, you know, I encouraged uh I, I just I, I, I just I wasn't sure if how sad it was going to be, you know, like I kind of was like, okay, here we go. It's going to be like, you know, one of the saddest movies of the year. And, you know, the movie starts and it's, it's actually like very light for most of it. It's just kind of like hanging out in Italy and, you know, a lot of reading <laughs> and uh, playing music and stuff and like riding bikes around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, it, it is sad, but it's like, you know, it's not, it's not the kind of sad that leaves you a mess, in my opinion. Like, I'm not going to, like, disparage anyone for crying and being upset after watching this movie. But, like, to me, it wasn't, like, it wasn't one of the most upsetting movies of the year, which I anticipated hearing about how sad it was. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. I mean, he was 17. He had a crush. And I'm pretty sure that it's like being wide release like this weekend or last weekend. Like it for the longest time, it was just playing in New York and L.A. And then it was just playing at like one theater in Seattle. But um, I'm pretty sure it's playing at more theaters. Either it either opened up last weekend or it's coming out further this weekend. It was mega limited for a, for a while in New York and L.A., and I kept reading statistics that its per-theater average um, was number one for, like, almost several weeks in a row, almost a month. And I was like, what does that even mean anyways? It took me four times to try to go see this movie because it was showing in one screen in one theater in New York, and every time I went with my movie pass, it was completely sold out all day and all night. And after the fourth try, I finally got in. It was crazy. I've never had that experience before, especially with an indie film. So, um, yeah, the movie that I chose to talk about is Phantom Thread. It's the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis, supposedly his last film. Um, Brief description, it's uh, set in the 1950s London. Reynold Woodcock is a renowned dressmaker whose fastidious life is disrupted by a young, strong-willed woman, Alma, who becomes his muse and lover. So I think this movie is important to talk about because Paul Thomas Anderson, he, I, I kind of think he's the best filmmaker making movies right now. I mean, there's a few that are up there, but like, he's only done like six movies, and all of them have either been like five-star movies or like lowest like four or, or misunderstood. You can look at him and kind of like separate it like you know there will be blood, five star absolute masterpiece. Like to me, the master that was another five star movie. Like Boogie Nights that like changed the game, you know. And then there's like Punch Drunk Love, which is like maybe like a four star movie, but like people love that movie. And Phantom Thread, he's reteaming with Daniel Day Lewis, who he did There Will Be Blood with, and. You know, supposedly it's Daniel Day-Lewis's last film, which, you know, is kind of a big deal of itself because he's one of the best, most dedicated actors of our time. This movie is, like, I would put it in, like, the masterpiece category where, like, everything about it is, like, pretty much perfect. You know, it's, it's like, every shot is beautiful. Like, just absolutely gorgeous. Johnny Greenwood's soundtrack is, like, is, like, so so unbelievably like beautiful daniel day lewis's performance is like subtle and complicated and like like angry and yet like hilarious and like kind of confusing at parts but like very real you know alma who he like falls in love with and is muse and lover but like she's like the strong will lady and you don't really see how far she's going to take take herself and the movie just like keeps going. It's like it's it's this romance, but it's like full of like subtle complexities and surprises. Yeah, the the characters in this movie are so unique and different. Um, like even for Daniel Day Lewis and his acting, like he could do anything, but the like affectations he brings to this character are even unlike anything he's touched before. The way he just speaks and his kind of like higher register of a voice and almost in a whisper, it's so real. The characterization of his wife as she comes into the movie and what she becomes and her growth throughout, I mean, it's not really growth because she there you get hints that she's always she always has been that way in their relationship. 
but you know where the movie goes is absolutely brilliant and so unexpected and the exact opposite of what you think this movie fandom thread is going to become um i also think i don't forget her name uh the sister's name that works with him leslie manville and her character's name is cyril woodcock she i she should be up for like best supporting actress like her small scenes in this movie are so powerful and so perfect it's it's also even funny at times. Like my theater was laughing throughout this movie and like similar to Inherent Vice, it, I mean, it's not an all out comedy like Inherent Vice, but it's not an all out drama like The Master. It rides a line between where it's dead serious and then at the next moment you're like laughing at how ridiculous some of the situations are. Yeah, you know, my theater had the same kind of thing. Like People were laughing throughout the whole movie, and I was actually, like, not sure if I should laugh or not. You know, it was those things where it was, <laughs> it like... It rides such a good line. Yeah. But I think it's, it's on the line of absurdist humor. Like, they're taking these situations just, like, to that next uncomfortable level, and you laugh at it um, because you don't see characters behave that way. And I thought that was, like, super difficult to do. Paul Thomas Anderson was able to do it perfectly. I think Inherent Vice like prepared him to be able to execute the film in that way. Yeah. Um, I liked what you said about how this movie is so surprising, especially in the end. Like you, you get to know these characters really well. And then as it plays out, it's like, it's still unbelievable watching what they do. I was like gripping my seat, which is weird for a movie about people making dresses. You know, it's like it's like like tense and completely shocked and surprised at how it was how the movie was playing out. Well, and that's the thing with Paul Thomas Anderson movies to me is that like you need to watch them more than once. That's the thing with like Inherent Vice. Like if you've only seen Inherent Vice once, it's like a confusing mess. <laughs> but then you like go home and you either read about it or you watch it again and you're like, oh yeah, like it totally makes sense. Just he was on drugs. And then like, you know, then you watch like movies like The Master and There Will Be Blood. And I'm so excited to watch Fam Thread again because I, after, after you're knowing where the movie goes, I just want to see like the little interactions between all of the characters and all of the moments. Okay, so with that, um, I think we're going to uh, wrap up the episode. Um, just a quick outro. Uh, next month, we're going to do our end of the year top 10 list, where each of us will present our top 10 and go around in a circle and count down to each of our number ones. This is always our favorite episode to do. And yeah, we're doing it a little late. You know, we don't, we don't do our top 10 in December. We like to wait till fe- February when... Where we have the ability to see all the movies that are coming out. So, like all the foreign films that got nominated for Best Picture, you know, they're they're not going to be coming out into a lot of the theaters until February. So, you know, it's kind of our philosophy to be able to see everything and make a more like accurate top ten as opposed to like you know rushing it out in December. Um, like, I mean, I wouldn't have even seen Phantom Thread um, or Call Me by Your Name if I had done top ten in December. So. Um, so yeah, that'll be our next episode. Brandon, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me at letterboxd at Beb, that's B E B. Um, and also on Instagram, uh, Brandon underscore Bulby. What about you, Derek? Uh, you can find me at letterbox or on letterbox at chicken tech. 
Cool. And I am uh, on Letterboxd at Mothman23. Nick Moffa is my name. And same thing on Twitter, at Mothman23. So uh, tune in next month for our end-of-the-year movie episode. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.